0: Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business mm-hmm. Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. editor from Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and uh, we've uh, turned the page here into September. We're uh, coming off a very entertaining first NFL game uh, of the season as we're taping this and uh you know, obviously also thinking uh, out to my colleagues and uh, other folks in the United Kingdom here as uh, they're dealing with the uh, loss of the, uh, of the Queen uh, Elizabeth II.
1: Yeah, no, Eric, it is a, a momentous week in a number of uh, ways. And again, we all mourn the passing of, of the Queen. As far as uh, where we are in the sports calendar, I'm excited for the kickoff of the NFL season. This was always a big weekend for me when I worked the league. Fortunately, a little bit less stressed right now, but look forward to watching the games on Sunday. So we've
0: got a bit of a theming here for this week's uh,
1: episode here. Uh, the uh,
0: As we've discussed in many prior weeks of uh, the podcast, uh, you know, one of the things particularly over the last couple of years has been the uh, growth of the sports collectible and trading card market. A lot of business has happened in and around that, and we've actually got three distinct developments in and around that space that we're going to be getting into. Uh, but first, we're going to have a conversation with Steve Pangburn. He is uh, coming to us from the uh, – concessions and hospitality space he uh runs north american operations for a big entity in that in that segment of the industry called sodexo live so we're going to spend some time with steve and then chris and i'll be back on the other side to break down the news of the week stay tuned We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly Steve Pangburn, Chief Executive of North America for Sidexo Live. The concessions operator, rebranded last year from its prior identity as center plate and a unit of the French Food Services and Facilities Management Company, is one of the largest entities in the entire sports and entertainment landscape, servicing hundreds of major venues and events around the world. Its key North American sites include Hard Rock Stadium in Florida, the Caesar Superdome in Louisiana and Lucas Oil Stadium in Indiana, among many others, and it plans to bid for rights at the forthcoming new stadium for the National Football League's Buffalo Bills. The company is also an official supporter of the Paris 2024 Olympics and will provide catering to the Athletes Village. Pangburn has been with Sodexo since 2004, serving in a variety of roles in both France and the United States, before assuming his current role in 2019. Steve, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much, Eric, and thank
0: you, Chris, as well, for having me on your show. So, as I mentioned, you've been with uh, Sodexu and Center Plate for a long time here. From your standpoint, you know, given all the changes in the industry, what's sort of got you excited, looking forward about the company and the space?
2: And I guess, why have you chosen to spend so much of your career there? First of all, coming out of COVID, it's just an exciting time to be in our business because everybody, the fans, the teams, they're all excited to get back uh, into, uh, uh, into stadiums and, and, and just have a great time. Uh, so that's exciting for me. It's exciting for my teams. And, and in my own job, it's passion. You know, I'm a, I love sports. I love hospitality. And so it's combining my passion in two awesome, awesome areas.
1: Steve, for those uh, listeners who are less familiar with the company, can you give us a snapshot of the business, the business model, and then just again, an overview
2: of how big is this, this business right now? Sure. So as Eric was mentioning, it's a, it's a global company. So Sodexo is a global company. We are the uh, sports, le- leisure, travel uh, business. It's called Sodexo Live. Uh, globally, we're 40,000 people, about 500 venues. And here in North America, we are 14,000 uh, team members and about 200 venues across the US and Canada, including all the way out to Hawaii and all the way up to your, your, your part of the woods as well.
0: You mentioned the uh, the COVID piece before here, and we're seeing you know in other elements of the live event space, particularly on the ticketing side, a pretty sizable return as health conditions improve and, and things sort of begin to resemble more of a normal situation. From your standpoint, how big is this bounce back going to be, and what have you sort of seen so far?
2: Bounce back is is very noticeable. Uh, people are comfortable now going back to stadiums, going back to concerts and events, and we're seeing. You know, upticks of 10 to 15 percent of uh, people coming back into the stadiums, but we're also seeing people having a propensity to spend. Uh, they are looking to have a good time. They're coming back. They are wanting to make a memorable experience. They've gone through two years of of not having much fun, and now they want to have more fun. And so, what we're seeing are per caps, so the average spend per person, significantly increasing. And it's not just because of inflation. Uh, We, we, you know, we speak about inflation quite a bit uh, across the U.S., where food inflation is going up 12 to 15 percent. Well, we're not applying that uh, to all of our pricing. We're seeing per caps going up by 20 to 30 percent. And so that means people are buying more. We're seeing transaction number of transactions going up and people buying, uh, buying more uh, as they're in the stadium just to have a good time and, and make that memorable experience.
1: Steve, while we have seen that bounce back, are you concerned that if we head into a recession, we might see a retrenchment? What is your view on kind of the macro economy and how it might affect where we are in, in the next
2: year? Well, we're not seeing it yet. And we've heard about uh, recession over the last several months. It has had no impact to this point on people spending. It may happen eventually. and uh, depends on how significant there is a recession. Uh, but uh, for the moment and for this season, I don't see an impact on people reducing their, their spending or reducing, you know, not going to a stadium. They want to come back and they want to go see their team. They haven't been able to do it for two years. Now they're there.
0: The last five to ten years, of course, have seen a, a real elevation in the quality and breadth of of the food offerings at, at major sporting events, and you certainly have been a your company has been a big part of that. And we've gone so far beyond the you know the basic hot dog and a beer here. Where does that trend line go? And as you know we get more environmentally conscious and also think about where food is sourced from where in terms of you know quality quantity local sourcing all that where are all those sort of food trend lines going moving forward
2: that's a great question uh, very much more and more local uh, people want to have that unique local feel when they go to a stadium and they want to get that whatever that specialty food item it's a, if it's a burger or if it's a, something very local when you go to Miami uh, where I'm going to be going tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to opening day on Sunday with the Dolphins. You want to feel like you're there. You want to eat local, and uh, and so over the past couple of years, it's really it's really shifted to being local uh, experience. No cookie cutter. How do you bring in local partners and design your menus to have that local feel? And a lot of that's also, as you mentioned, you know, buying local product. How do you get the the farm to table as close as possible uh, in the stadium or in any other one of our venues? And that's our team has been working uh, tireless, tirelessly over the last couple of years to, to really build, uh, build that into, uh, into our menus and into our offers.
1: Steve, who do you consider your competitors in this space? And what is the, the key competitive advantage that you bring to the table?
2: Oh, well, we have uh, uh, several formidable competitors uh, who do a great job. There is Levy, there is Delaware North, uh, Aramark, I'm sure you've heard of, of many of those. And we all have our, our strengths and, uh, and our strength is, is culinary. We have invested in our culinary teams and our people uh, over the last uh, several years to really provide a unique culinary experience in all, of our, uh, in all of our venues. So we have a team that can deliver any size event, any quality, anywhere across the US and Canada, and at any time. So we're, that's our strength. Plus, we are a family owned business. We're probably one of the biggest mom and pop shops worldwide. Our company uh, is family owned. Uh, in fact, uh, I work for one of the, one of the founders' daughters. We're in the second generation now, and our company will continue to be family owned for the next 50 years. The, the family has uh, signed a pact not to sell outside of the family. So we're going to be a mom and pop shop, and that means that we can set our values. We're not. Uh, you know, we're not owned by private equity. We're not out to, to make a quick buck. We're there for long term. And as you know, you know, winning is, is short term. Success is long term. And so as a family owned business where we can invest for the next 50 years, we're bidding or, and betting uh, on that long term success.
0: I mentioned uh, your relationship coming up here with the uh, Paris 2024 Olympics before here. What have been some of your other more recent client wins? And as you go through this process, is this a standard RFP type of situation? Or what exactly is the sort of competitive bid dynamic for you to get this new business?
2: There are several uh, ways in which we go about getting new business. So one is the competitive bidding process. Another is is convincing self-op or family-owned businesses to, to go towards our expertise. We provide training, we provide tools, uh, we provide uh, purchasing volume that they just can't do on their own. So there's both uh, those types of uh, approaches to, to winning new business. Paris 2024, all very excited about it. It was a very competitive uh, program and process, but uh, uh, we are certainly well-based in Paris. Our, our headquarters are there and we have five uh, Michelin star Michelin stars and restaurants in the Paris area, and we leveraged all of that to show that we could provide the best culinary experience for all of the guests and and feeding all of the athletes uh, when they come to Paris. So, it's essentially putting out what What do you do best? And and our strength, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is providing that unique uh, culinary uh, experience for uh, for our fans.
1: Steve, while you've been growing through these new kinds of relationships and partnerships and and client deals. Are you also looking at inorganic growth, like potentially acquiring other companies? And if so, what kinds of companies would be interesting acquisitions for you guys?
2: Uh, oh, absolutely. There's always opportunity for uh, external growth. While we do prioritize organic growth, because that's the most sound, that's the, 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 the less risky uh, part, but we are always looking for external possibilities. In fact, we've launched a, an accelerator program is what we call it, where we work with uh, startups. we work with startups to to look at different areas of our business where uh, a startup could bring in a new technology or a new way of doing things. and we're going to actually be working uh, with uh, uh, twenty to thirty of them over the next couple of months to, to to do some somewhat of a shark tank approach where they'll be they'll be pitching their businesses and we'll be looking at well which ones would we like to invest in or partner with.
0: As you look uh, forward here in Venue Food Service, what are some of the new innovations and new technologies that has you really excited? I remember a few years back being in a Major League Baseball game with uh, robotic fry stations, and people were sort of uh, talking about that as one of those big new things. But you know, whether it be robotics or some of these other things, what has what, what sort of got you excited about new technology in this space?
2: Well, what's been really exciting is uh, during the COVID years, we made leaps and bounds uh, in tech. So while people weren't in the stadiums or weren't in our venues, uh, we were able to invest and and make leaps and bounds. And so, first of all, we went cashless. So, Eric, when you go to your stadium, don't bring your cash, <laughs> bring your card, bring your phone, but don't bring don't bring any cash. And really, we focused on how do we uh, get the, the guests and the fans back to their seats as quick as possible so that they can enjoy the event. And so what you'll be seeing in, in stadiums uh, going forward is is approaches to reducing the time in lines. So you'll be seeing self-ordering, you'll be seeing the, the walk out concept. So for example, at T-Mobile Stadium in Seattle, uh, we've opened a, a Amazon Go just walk out store. And so you go in, you, you put your palm on the, on the reader, you get whatever you want and you walk right out. It's incredible because people can get there, get their food, sit down and then come back again because they didn't spend any time in lines. Uh, that increases uh, not only the fan experience, uh, but overall for the the stadium, our partners and us, it's a win-win-win.
1: Steve, as we head into the football season and maybe even more broadly the next year, what are the top two or three priorities for you and your business over the next
2: 12 months? So the next uh, 12 months is is absolutely critical to to continue ramping back up. It was from COVID, everything got shut down, business is coming back up. So it's really uh, staffing and and providing that unique uh, fan experience, they deserve it. They are looking for it, and so it's really getting to the top tier and getting the results for uh, for fan experience while at the same time looking forward. so the the fans are changing what they're looking for, so it's it's listening to them, doing surveys, understanding well what are they looking for next, and then investing in in what they're looking for next in order to deliver that over the next several years.
0: clearly a lot happening in and around the uh, venue concessions and hospitality space. We're going to be continuing to track that across all the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Steve Pangburn from Sodexo Live for spending this time with us.
2: It's been a pleasure and uh, hope to see you at one of our venues, whether in Miami, New Orleans, (laughs) Indianapolis. Uh, We want to make sure your fan experience is fantastic, Mm -hmm. Eric and Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Steve Pangburn again from Sodexo Live for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week, as mentioned at the outset, uh, we've got a bit of an all collectibles theme here going into uh, this week's episode. And first off, we do this... Sort of uh, with the backdrop of we just set an industry record, not even this past week, but uh, a couple of weeks back here, we had a, a very momentous uh, record in this segment of this uh, industry set where a uh, card from 1952 of the late Baseball Hall of Famer Mickey Mantle sold for twelve point six million dollars at auction, far and away the largest price ever for a uh, individual item in, in the sports collectible and trading card space here. And those valuations for those high end, uh, high demand items continue to go up. And, and, you know, more people uh, continue to think that uh, we're going to hit 20, 30 million dollars someday for some of these uh, most coveted items. But within that backdrop here, we had uh, three different distinct stories, you know, really sort of helping to shape the space further here. And and first off it was in the realm of basketball. We're so rare. This is the NFT uh, trading card entity. Uh, we've talked about them a lot and we've uh, had Nicholas, Julie and Ryan Spoon from their uh, shop uh, on the podcast previously Made originally a very strong base in soccer, and then they b- did a big deal back in the spring with Major League Baseball that we talked about at length. Well, they've done another really big deal here, uh, this time with the National Basketball Association and the National Basketball Players Association. And it's really sort of the same playbook where they're going to be creating an NFT-based basketball trading card game, fantasy game. And uh, they've got league uh, use of league marks. They've got use of player names and likenesses. And it's really sort of part and parcel with that strategy that uh, Ryan and Nicholas discussed with us and using that using that base that they've built, using that VC money that they've raised and continuing to do more deals with more tier one entities.
1: Yeah, this is not a surprise, Eric, because uh, the NBA was one of the few of the major, major leagues that didn't have a fantasy focused deal. I think what's interesting about this as we get into a period of questioning NFTs and what are they best for and how should they be used the notion of sort of engagement, the notion of utility is becoming increasingly important. And that's why I think So Rare brings an interesting advantage to the table because it's really about getting consumers to play a game, not simply looking at a video clip or looking at an image. And I think that uh, gives So Rare an edge as we move more toward this era, in my view, of utilities around NFTs.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point because obviously, so much of what we've heard about in and around the NFT space, you know, just in the last. Few months has been around the crashing valuations and what that's going to do in terms of uh, the future of that portion of the space and future business activity, and you know we're already seeing some fallout on the sponsorship side. And we recently reported that there was a big deal between Crypto and dot com and UEFA that fell apart in part because of some of these issues, and and that also had a lot to do with some uh, legal constructs. But you know, broadly speaking. You know, the valuations on some of that more sort of investment side of the NFT space has really created a lot of turbulence in the space. You know, so rare has come in with a completely different model here where this really is about the engagement and deepening that fan affinity. And I think this is going to continue to give these leagues a lot of comfort. You know, continuing to do business going forward here, that they've got a completely different thing in terms of their overall goal and mindset here, besides a financial return or a speculation.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, getting away from the get rich quick theme is a good idea. And I, I do have to give SoRare credit for really moving into the U.S. aggressively over the last year since we had that podcast, Eric. You know, they've done deals with MLS, MLB, now the NBA. They've got a relationship with Serena Williams. So while they weren't necessarily the first in the U.S., Dapper, obviously, with the NBA, was one of the pioneers. SoRare has come in very strongly in the U.S. after having really launched its business and focused it on Europe initially.
0: Well, people matter, and this is a relationships-driven business. And they they did some really smart hires with, you know, bringing in a team in part with Ryan Spoon, their chief operating officer. They've got Michael Meltzer doing business development. You know, other folks that they brought in that uh, you know, but uh, particularly those two come to mind in the sense that they've got a lot of relationships in this business. And yes, so rare is a more new and a more unknown entity in the space relative to a lot of the established incumbents. But those folks have been around the block and they've worked at big places. And when they go into these league offices, it isn't a conversation starting from zero, quite the opposite, that because those relationships are already there, you can sort of move that deal making on in a completely different way.
1: Yeah, that's certainly those relationships help. I'm sure the bankroll that so rare has <laughs> right. also helped as you know they raised about 680 million dollars yep. i think at a 4.3 billion valuation we don't know what level of investment is being made in these deals or what kind of rights fees because those haven't been released but i agree it's sort of a combination of a, you know a good brand in this nft space the good executives and of course money and and those things have played together well for so rare
0: well, much more to come on the So Rare Fund because, again, for all the reasons we've just described, much more deal making to come. So I'm sure we're going to be continuing to discuss them. But shifting from uh, one uh, well-known entity to another, uh, Derek Jeter, the baseball Hall of Famer, uh, most recently was the chief executive of the Miami Marlins before he uh, left that organization uh, just prior to the start of the uh, 2022 regular season. He was part of the uh, uh, high profile ESPN documentary series, the captain that uh, just ran, but he's resurfaced in a business sense here. We've been sort of watching to see what uh, Jeter's next move in the space was going to be. And while he's put his eyes on the uh, collectible space and on top of the Players Tribune and some other things that he has had going on all this time, he's got a new venture called Arena Club. He's working with a serial entrepreneur named Brian Lee. He's now in the VC space, but he's been involved with a number of companies including legal zoom jeter and lee of uh, with the this arena club this is um providing a number of spa- uh, services to collectors in terms of platform for buying and selling and, and for grading and so forth uh but really trying to bridge the physical and digital realms of collecting and part of what they're trying to bring to the table here is uh artificial intelligence based grading here and uh they could, you know, besides the prominence of Jeter and obviously the uh, attraction and attention that he garners, this could really sort of help solve a real pain point. Because uh, one of the things going on in this whole collectibles boom is it's been really hard for collectors, particularly smaller ones, to get their items graded and things turned around here. That all the established grading services are completely overwhelmed with demand and business, and turnaround can often be many, many months to get uh, cards graded. And some of them don't even want to deal with you if you've only got a handful of cards that you want to get done and really are focusing their attention on on larger collectors and larger entities here. So there's some real room here, I think, for Jeter and his partners to come in and, and, and carve out a, a niche for themselves in this space.
1: There really is, Eric. And while this is a very large industry, it's predominantly a mom and pop type business Recently, we've seen some big investments and and big moves from Fanatics and Steve Cohen and Blackstone. So we're seeing big money come into the space, but technology has not been a strong suit for the traditional collectible space up till now. And so I think bringing technology, bringing AI into the mix is something that could really give Jeter's company uh, a competitive advantage going forward. And they're they're looking to bring that to the grading piece, but also tie it to a broader ecosystem where you can store your cards, you could sell them, you could have them graded. And that integration, I think, is also important.
0: Yeah. And and your point is well taken because of that whole sort of mom and pop thing that is increasingly becoming consolidated and professionalized with all this new VC money coming in. Again, that's your point is well taken because this is still a, a business that sort of needs to catch up to the 21st century in a lot of ways here. And again, you sort of combine that with the uh, stature of Jeter. And it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of partnerships that he can sort of do and and how quickly they want to scale this, because, you know, beyond sort of appealing to individual consumers, there's a lot of partnership and business development that could be pretty interesting here, again, using the leverage of, you know, what Jeter and his brand brings to the table.
1: I think his brand will be helpful. Uh, Ultimately, I think a lot of this will hinge on how good the product is. In other words, particularly around the grading piece, yep. how how good, how quickly, how accurately, uh, because this grading space is really still very subjective. You have individual graders looking at cards and making determinations with some of the other major services. Is this a nine, is this a 10? And if there is a way to standardize that and and make it more driven by technology, that, that will be a huge a benefit. And then hopefully for Jeter, the marketplace accepts that grade as a valid grade and, and really makes those cards valuable that still will be you know will be to, to be determined.
0: Yeah, that's a great point cuz uh you know that the subjectivity of some of these grades and if you know the person who's looking at your card on a given day, you know, maybe having a bad day or something, you know, all those sort of human factors coming into this and you know creating a little bit more of a standardized sort of playbook cuz again if we're talking about you know individual cards now going for eight figures and now potentially as i said at the outset you know, potentially pushing over time over subsequent years, more towards mid eight figures, having a clear framework for what grade we're actually talking about. It's really going to be very important because, you know, we're we're talking about very serious money now.
1: We are. And those are, you know, those are some of the big cards you mentioned, Eric. And there will always be some level of controversy about grades around those. But you also have to think about the millions and millions of cards that are trying to get graded every year yep. and there's been backlogs and there's been issues as you pointed out. And so a way to automate even the more common flow of, of card grading is going to be helpful. It adds more liquidity to the system, brings in more collectors, and ultimately I believe will drive up prices because it's easy to buy, easier to buy and sell.
0: Absolutely. So much more to come on that front. And obviously, uh, you know, Derek Jeter is never a person too far from the headlines here. So imagine we're going to be continuing to discuss him as the uh, uh, weeks and months continue on here. But uh, shifting to another segment of the uh, of the industry. there's a company out there called PWCC Marketplace, and we haven't talked about them a lot necessarily here on the podcast. But you know, another pretty big marketplace out there in terms of selling a number of high end cards, and they've been a fixture in some of the uh, records that have been set along the way for some of the big cards. But uh, you know, there's been a, sort of that long tail of the hobby that they've also been servicing as well. Here, they've done something kind of interesting here, where they've raised a 175 million dollar credit facility. From another entity called Whitehawk Capital Partners. And and what they're doing is is sort of using these funds to really sort of help elevate trading cards and collectibles as a high-end asset class. And this money is going to be used to sort of help, um, Collectibles based lending where people are sort of borrowing money using high-end cards as collateral, uh, you know, getting advances for auctions and and things of that of that sort, where it's not just sort of selling a card here, but sort of really thinking about it as a high-end financial asset.
1: Absolutely. And the liquidity, which we were talking about just before, is is really critical here because it's basically saying if you have some great cards and they're in their vault. Uh, they can lend you money against those cards and let you buy even more cards. Or if you basically are thinking about where to bring your cards to auction and you want to get an advance, uh, they're facilitating that with this capital. So I think it creates a lot more transactions, a lot more liquidity, which uh, which will be a, a big boon to PWCC.
0: Yeah. And to that end, it, it, I think you make a good point there in terms of just having people in their ecosystem and sort of buying, selling, lending, trading, what have you, that you sort of, it's almost a, a bit of a um, sort of marketing vehicle of, of sorts here that, you know, using that to get people in the door and then ending up doing a whole bunch of other business and other transacting within that PWCC marketplace ecosystem.
1: Yeah. And we're seeing that across the industry, Eric, where you have. PSA owns Golden. You know, you've got eBay, and they've got vaulting services. There's this this goal to basically service the customer in a full service way, I guess. And now, I think with the ability to offer money uh, as via collateral or or, or upfronts uh, is just another part of that incentive to get the customer in your ecosystem. And I, I do think you might see some of the other players in the space have to follow suit in some way, shape, or form to compete.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting one. And you mentioned eBay before, and you know, PWCC and eBay last year had a pretty notable falling out among a number of uh, issues. And part of what ended up happening with that is PWCC looking to sort of do more of their own thing and rely less on eBay for some of their transacting. And this is, again, a strengthening of, the, of their own ecosystem. And you know, your point is very well taken that you know, whether it be eBay themselves or other marketplaces, you know, creating this fuller range of services, being financial, being part of that, you know, something that we could certainly expect to see.
1: And again, with with players in the space like Fanatics, like Blackstone, like Steve Cohen, there are parties that have plenty of money or access to capital to kind of complete those loops. So we may end up with an ecosystem of you know five or six really major mega players and then thousands of mom and pops still out there in some way, shape or form competing. So the industry is really transforming rapidly. And I, I think in general, it's good for the collector because there are more services. And, and again, this will probably drive up prices in some way, shape or form over time.
0: Absolutely. And then ultimately, just creating more affinity for the hobby, for the industry, and in turn, more, you know, deeper levels of fan engagement, because this is part of what this is all about in terms of these collecting of these pieces that not only is obviously as an asset class, as we've discussed, but, you know, fundamentally in a, at its roots, this is all about an instrument of fan engagement, fan affinity, and finding additional ways to for fans to connect with their favorite teams and players.
1: It, it is, Eric. And I think what's maybe been somewhat surprising is the excitement around the the rebound of the hobby hasn't been limited to older fans. There's really been this excitement among the next generation of fans as well around the collectible space. Some of that is around NFTs, but it's also around the physical cards as well. And so we've seen this, this hobby really rebound in a way that uh, engages people in these sports uh, that might have been unexpected.
0: Yeah. And it's really sort of remarkable that, you know, both of us are old enough to remember, you know, how this whole market really sort of crashed in the early 90s in the face of a lot of overproduction and greed. And, you know, it's been a very slow twisting, turning build back. And, you know, a lot of what you know, a lot of veterans of the space we're hoping to see in the late 80s is now sort of coming true, but it's taken a whole generation plus to happen with a lot of pain in between here. But I think because of all of these lessons learned and steps taken along the way, ultimately, what is being what is emerging is a stronger, healthier, deeper and broader industry.
1: I agree. And I, I do think this notion of Trading cards being almost an asset class like gold or, or like other things that you could buy is really starting to take hold in part because of the grading and authentication, the vaulting, all of these other services. And that makes it uh, even more appealing to people as they think about not only their passion, but the value of the things that they're buying.
0: Well, much more to come on this space as we move forward. Uh, but as we come to towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere
1: in the space and see what else is catching our eye. And, Chris, I will start with you. Well, Eric, since it's the start of the NFL season, and you know, I spent six years there and, and, yep. and keep up with it uh, to some degree, uh, probably three deals or three areas I would be looking for as we move through this season. One is, uh, what's going to happen with Sunday ticket and, and what kind of deal is going to be done there yep. Two, uh, what is going to happen with the uh, NFL owned media assets, where the league was looking at some potential arrangements, hired Goldman Sachs. We haven't heard a lot of news about that lately. And then the third thing to look for in terms of NFL initiatives is how well this new push for international growth and expansion uh, plays out. What kind of successes can they generate in this, this first year of teams have having Their own uh, international territories, and so those would be the three big initiatives I would be looking at: Sunday Ticket, NFL-owned media, and NFL International.
0: Well, one and two, they're very likely combined in one monster deal. That's been the conventional wisdom. We'll see if that plays out. As to your international point, you know, all signs appear to be pointing north. Uh, you know, we saw record levels of uh, interest in the uh, initial Germany games that the league is playing uh, is playing this year. We've got three games coming up in uh, the UK. We've got a game in Mexico. All the local interest is is very strong around that. But what I've also seen in in recent weeks that's been very interesting is teams really, individual teams really beginning to exploit those country-specific rights that were first granted back around the holidays and doing a lot of individual media deals, a lot of local radio sponsorship and the like as the 2022 season now starts, teams are really beginning to flex their muscles in terms of those rights that have been granted.
1: Yeah, that, Eric, it will be interesting to see at the end of the season what experiments were done in the various markets and what learning there is. And it's almost like you have a number of different laboratories where teams will be trying different things and they'll be able to share learnings and, uh, and get set for the next season.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think this landscape is going to look pretty different by the time we get to a year from now in the start of the 2023 season. But from my standpoint, uh, you know, it's really been a uh, momentous uh, couple of weeks, 10 days or so for the MLB Players Association. And it's something I'm really kind of paying attention going forward here, that two particular um, pieces of uh import for, for the union here. First, they uh, have started a process to unionize the minor leagues, something we talked uh, the whole reconstruction of the affiliated minor league system in baseball here in North America. We talked a lot about this on the podcast. What the uh, MLB Players Association is now doing is, is working to unionize that segment uh, of the industry. They've gotten very strong response from those players and are now uh, have begun a process to have their representation of those players recognized by the league. We'll see if that happens. If it doesn't happen, there is a process that they can go through with the National Labor Relations Board to get that recognition. But really interesting stuff happening there that will bring some more improvements for players at that level of play. And then meanwhile, the union has also joined the AFL-CIO, the largest federation of labor unions in the United States. And this is something that. that's... That's going to help uh, them tap into the broader American labor union uh, movement, bring some more resources and learnings to bear here. And then ultimately, you sort of put these two things together. You have a bigger, stronger union and something that given all the challenges that they faced here in the last couple of years between a very tough labor negotiation with the league, covid you know, sort of a redefinition of the industry on a number of levels here. You know, bringing more resources to bear, bringing more membership to bear, and, and leaving them in a stronger place. I, I think this is a smart move by the union. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again.